Ephesians chapter 9. Three sections in this wonderful letter. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome. Probably a group of house churches. Big city. And yet they had leaders. And he's writing and letting them know about his wishes to come to them. He had not planted this church, nor had he visited this church when he wrote it. We've looked at the first eight chapters uh, where Paul lays out, without a doubt, the greatest doctrinal exposition of what it is to be a Christian in all of God's Word. And and we looked at that. We spent a lot of time in, in chapter 8, I think seven studies. Um, and then we saw last week, as we began chapter 9, that Paul shifts. He pivots and he begins now to look at Israel, at the Jews. Uh, we see that in chapters 9, 10, and 11, that it's sort of a giant parenthesis. It's, he, he will re-engage with the church directly at Rome in chapter 12 and following, and, and there he begins to apply all of the things that he has put forth in these first eight chapters. But first, he goes in, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, writes not to the Gentiles. He's, yeah, he's writing to a Gentile church, so there is application for us, but he's writing about his countrymen, the Jews. And, and, and so in chapter 9, just up front, this is a difficult chapter to understand. Uh, it's impossible to understand unless you know where Paul's going as he builds his case, as he lays things out. Uh, and, and the way he does it is succinctly, thought upon thought, point upon point, uh, as he goes. Now, I want to look at how Paul arranges those thoughts for a moment, because it's critical in our understanding what he's saying in this chapter. So often what Paul does is he'll lay out uh, and state his purpose on the front end, uh, and then he will follow that by giving understanding of just exactly what it is that he's that he's doing. At other times, he lays out uh, and he culminates his thoughts with his main point at the end. Uh, that's what he's doing here. And I was thinking about this. My wife loves to taunt me. She's always, we'll be watching a movie and she'll say, can we just go to the end and see how it turns out? And I'm going, no, don't do it. And she's saying, I will. I will, and she teases me about it because she knows that I'm all about the journey. She's all about the destination, and, and it's just the way we process. <laughs> and so she wants to go to the end of the movie to see what it is saying, and then she'll come back and watch it. Well, that's sort of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go to the end of the movie. We're going to go to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to backfill with what exactly Paul is getting at with the things he's laying out here in chapter 9. Uh, he starts with this wonderful five verses that we looked at last week about the great burden that he has for Israel. Uh, and, and then in order, as we look at verses 6 through 16 this morning, uh, I, I want to jump ahead to verses 32 and 33, especially verse 32, because it's there that Paul gives us his objective, what he's getting at as he builds his case. And in verse 32, he says, the Jews had stumbled at the stumbling stone. What on earth does that mean? Well, uh, let's just take it apart. 
The word stumbled there. I'm not going to go into the Greek words. I, I, I often do, but I want to kind of get through this. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Uh, the word stumbled means literally to strike one's foot against something as one walks and to lose one's balance. It means to trip over something. How many of you have been, <laughs> I lived for a long time in a town that had, there was my property, and then there was a sidewalk, and then there was city property, a big grassy area that had all these trees. Well, when they built the tree, or put in the trees and built the sidewalks in the 1930s, that sidewalk was level, but I cannot tell you how many times I would be on a walk in that city, and my foot would strike that elevated chunk where the roots had come up and pushed it up, and I would stumble. I mean, I would trip, and I would be like flying forward, trying to get my balance, and my immediate care is not, am I okay? My immediate care is, who saw that? (laughs) And and we've all done it. Well, that's what stumbling is here. He's saying they stumbled. They tripped over something. And then he says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And that's the thing that causes you to trip. It's the thing that causes someone to stumble. In this context, he's making a direct reference to the Lord Jesus. He is the stumbling stone. Uh, so the question then becomes, what was it about Jesus that they tripped over? Two things. First, they stumbled over God's choice of Messiah. They did not like his choice of Messiah. And for a couple of reasons. The first was that he wasn't a political Messiah. He could care less about their politics. Now, the Sanhedrin in Israel in the first century, they were religious leaders, but they also had political power. They had limited political power. It was a puppet government. If you remember school where they taught you what a puppet government is, it's where the the conquering nation sets up a a government of, of people who are actually part of that nation, but they are totally subject to the conquering nation. And that's what... The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that's what they were. They didn't like Rome, but they were really good at sucking up to Rome when they wanted to get something from them. And so they had established a power base through this. And Jesus was a direct threat to that power base. They could not, they set their teeth on edge when he began to come in and to teach and to draw the crowds away from them to following after him. He also, in the last week of his life, we looked briefly last week at the triumphal entry where where Jesus comes over the hill and the temple mount is spread out before him and and the people are throwing the palm fronds down and they're screaming Hosanna and, and, and that whole big scene there, a crowd comes out of the city, a crowd comes down the hill and the two meet and there's just all of this stuff and the leaders are saying, shut him up. And he says, if I try to shut him up, the rocks are going to cry out, all of that. By the end of that week, the people themselves would be rejecting Jesus because he wasn't a political Messiah. They thought he was going to come and throw off Rome. Didn't do it. He didn't come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from themselves. The second thing is that Jesus wasn't a religious Messiah. He squarely condemned the pompous religiosity of the spiritual elite air quotes, of his day. Uh, 
one of the things that was fascinating about it, he was a commoner from Nazareth up in the northern part of the country in Galilee. That's why you know, the comment was made, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It's like, no, no, this is the white-collar area down here in Jerusalem. And those blue-collar guys, eh, not so much, you know, and they, they really looked down on the people from the north. But Jesus would come. They had seven national feasts, and he would come to the feasts unless the Spirit was directing him to stay away. And in the temple, on the Temple Mount, it was lined with porticos, with big, huge columns. If you've ever seen a, a, a rendition of that, it, it was a majestic place. And in these porticos, they were separated. Again, the columns were 150 feet apart. I don't remember exactly how far apart. But you could get a number of people in them, and it provided shade for, during the feast, the rabbis would go and teach. <laughs> and they would go into one of these porticos. And, and there were dozens of them lining the whole Temple Mount. Well, so there would be like, you know, this rabbi here, that rabbi there, this rabbi over here, and there'd be a little crowd there, and then there would be Rabbi Jesus, and this crowd is pouring out into the Temple Mount because he was so popular. They didn't like that either. He wasn't a religious messiah. Uh, they just, they, they just didn't do well with somebody that wasn't part of their gig. And he wasn't. The second thing that they stumbled over was God's method of salvation. Uh, they, the Jews, they had so distilled the law of Moses down to endless lists of obedience. The reason they did that, because they believed that in those, they could gain righteousness. They believed that they could gain right standing with God. Not so much, Jesus said. I mean, in the, his, one of his very first uh, teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses those guys, the righteousness that they're manufacturing, there's no way you can go to heaven. So he, he, he just, he wasn't, they stumbled over the way that God saved them because to a first century Jewish mind, the, 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 the message of salvation by God's grace alone was a horrible stumbling block. They had lived their entire lives under this religious system, Judaism, the first century Judaism, which didn't look a lot like the way God had designed Judaism to look, but they had lived their lives under that, thinking that they're piling up righteousness, when indeed we've looked in Romans, they were instead piling up wrath. And so Jesus exposed that. He, he exposed their religious folly. And, and he, in no uncertain terms, if there was anybody that Jesus poked in the chest, and you read all of the Gospels, you'll see that universally, without fail, it was the religious guys. It was the people that had supposed that they were there. The people that thought that they had it cornered. Because he came with an entirely different message. It's not about living under the law. It's not about living with a list of rules. It's about loving God. It's about coming into a precious relationship with him based on the grace of God. You don't have... And, and what God did in the gospel is he said, you know what? It's not just for Jews. It's equally for Gentiles. They were scandalized by that. They not only rejected God's choice of who in the Messiah, but they rejected God's choice of how salvation would come about. Rejecting that it was solely a gift of God on the basis of faith to anybody equally, both Jew and Gentile. 
He says in, in Ephesians 2, I love that passage, that the, the, the wall of separation has been broken down. It's taken away. Making a direct reference to what was called the Sorig on the Temple Mount, which was you could go in, if you went into the temple in those days, you could go into the court of the Gentiles. And there was, if you could only go so far, then there was a waist-high wall called the Sorig. And beyond that, you could not go if you were a Gentile. It was only for Jews. And what Paul says, and he's saying it metaphorically, but truly there was a direct application. He's broken down that wall. You can, anybody can come. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is if you love Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you by faith have come and received the gift of salvation. That was the basis now. An example here, I want to set this up in in Acts chapter 22 of of the the hostility of the Jews towards the Gentiles. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul has gone back to Jerusalem. He knows that chains and tribulation await him there. We see that in Acts 20 when he's there with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. And, And he knows, he knows that trouble's coming and yet he goes anyway. So he's there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22. He's been speaking about the gospel and the Jews had gotten very heated up towards him. So much so that the Romans had to pull him out of the crowd. Well, so they pull him out of the crowd and he says to the to the officer, he says, look, let me just go talk. To him. And I'm paraphrasing, but this is what happened. Let me just go talk to him. All right. Just just give me a few minutes with these guys. There's a big crowd there. And so the Romans permit him. He goes down onto the stairs and he begins to speak. This is what he says. Part of, we're breaking into the middle of what he's saying. He says, now it happened when I, Paul, returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance. He was in the spirit. And I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he, Jesus says to Paul, he, then he said to me, depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Verse 22 in this chapter says, and, when, and they listened to him until this word. What word? Gentiles. If folks are Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew, I mean, that's you and I, we're Gentiles, unless you're Jewish, and welcome. <laughs> but with the word Gentiles, the crowd went nuts. They went absolutely bonkers. They're raising their voices, demanding his death. They tore off their clothes and threw dirt in the air. I mean, they were upset because they hated the Gentiles. They viewed themselves as completely superior to the Gentiles in every way. So by contrast, looking back at the first eight chapters in Romans, we see that Paul's detailed both man's need and God's provision in the gospel of Christ. And it's a whole different message than what the Jews had had prior. You see that God's done an entirely new work as relates to salvation. And all of it through the work of the cross and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the past work of justification, where being justified, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We've looked at the present work of sanctification. Yes, we were sanctified, declared holy, 
but we are being sanctified, that we are being delivered from the power of sin. We've looked at the future work of glorification, where we will in that day when we are glorified, when we are with him in glory, that we'll be delivered from the presence of sin. I love that passage in Revelation. I mention it often where John says, and in that place there will be no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow. The presence of sin is gone because at the root of all of those things is sin. So what Paul is saying here and what Jesus' message was that all of this is available to anybody who would simply believe. He says, just trust that the work's been done. There's nothing for you to do, but receive it. So seeing all of this, the question would naturally be, what about the Jews? What about them? Are they no longer God's chosen people? Are they no longer in the spotlight with the Lord? What's God's disposition, past, present, and future with the Jews? And that's what Paul gets into here in Romans chapter 9. They would wonder, what's the value in being his chosen people? We've looked at, again, we, just to, I'll give a brief recap of the first five verses because uh, we've, we looked at how Paul uses an exceptionally loving tone. And these are people who are presently trying to kill him. I mean, not maybe. I mean, they, they are still, uh, that scene I read to you uh, there in Jerusalem a minute ago came after he wrote the book of Romans. I mean, remarkable, remarkable that that he would be so loving towards these people who want his head. And yet he understood the nature of the gospel. He understood the nature of God's forgiveness. It's available to every man, every woman. He's going to have some really strong things to say here in in chapter 9, especially where this is a two-part uh, message next week we'll get into the second part that, where he uh, puts the hammer down but I believe that part of his what he has to say in these first five verses so they would understand his tone towards them as he went forward with the with revealing these things that are on his heart and remember we looked at his apostleship last week uh, by virtue of the fact that he is writing under the inspiration of the spirit this is God's heart towards people, towards you and I, towards them. He said if it was possible, he would have given up his own salvation. He knows, he knows it's not. Uh, he would trade places with them. Talk about that. Then, it's interesting, he lists the benefits of being God's chosen people. Uh, of all the people on earth, God had chosen to adopt them. We went through this last week. I'm going to go through it quickly because it really applies as we move forward into the context of the passage we're looking at this morning. So they've been chosen to be God's people. God had adopted them, not in the same sense as the spirit of adoption we looked at in Romans 8, whole different deal, but that he took them as his own. He chose to reveal his glory in them. Remember in the cloud and in the pillar of fire and then further on in the tabernacle when his glory descended upon that, he chose to reveal himself to this people. It was with Israel and her fathers alone that God had chosen to make his covenant people. He said, I am setting you apart as a people for myself. He chose to give Israel his law through Moses, chose to raise up from among the Levites vessels for service to God, chose to them to be the recipients of his promises. 
Going all the way back to Abraham, the promise of a country, the promise of a people, and that through his seed, the nations of the earth would be blessed. That includes you and I. Most significantly, we read in in that first five verses that he had chosen to send forth the promised Messiah through them. In all of these, Paul's pointing out that God had sovereignly chosen. He had sovereignly elected Israel for these things. We're going to talk about election this week and next. We're going to talk about sovereignty this week and next. He reminded them that they have a long history with God and that God has not somehow changed with them. Because that was part of what they were claiming, is that God has changed now. He's somehow different. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet his choice of Messiah, his method of salvation had changed, yes. Why? Because he wanted to do something better. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's also reminding them that God doesn't need or seek their approval. You know, that's a popular thing out there in in church land where people are calling God to do this and they're commanding God to, like he's some cosmic bellhop. God forbid that we move away from understanding that we are solely and strictly children who are under the sovereign hand of God and that he calls the shots. We don't. That's what sovereignty means is that he does what he wants. He does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and with whom he wants. It's part of what Paul's getting at here. That's the definition of God's sovereignty. He's a choosing God. How many times did he use the term he chose in this list of things that Paul lays out that he has done with Israel? All of it because he's sovereign. Not because Israel was all that and more. It didn't take them long to just slide under the carpet and totally blow the whole thing. And yet he came back to them over and over and over again. I love in Isaiah chapter 1 where he says, you know, I've had it. I've had it with your worship. I've had it with your prayers. I've had it with your assemblies. And in the middle of that whole indictment on Israel, he says, come now. Can we reason together? You know, your sins are like scarlet, but they could be white as wool. They could be white and and you could be cleansed. That's the heart of a sovereign God. He's a choosing God with everything, far more than what we're looking at here. And there is direct application to our lives. We'll we'll touch on that today and we'll get into it uh, a lot more deeply next week. I bet you never thought I'd get to the text here. Verses We're going to read through verses 6 through 9 together. He says, but it is not that the word of God, which is the old covenant promises, that has has taken no effect. For they're not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they're the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, quote, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So we know from the Old Testament that that son was Isaac, Abraham's son. He was the son that was born of the promise. Paul's point here is that God has a long history of exercising his sovereignty in man's history. It's included his choice of Israel from among the nations and his choice 
of which son would carry the promise forward. Uh, so on the one hand, they balked about God's choice of Messiah, his choice of how to save man. And yet on the other hand, they'd been the beneficiary of God's choices throughout their history. Double standard going there. That's what Paul is exposing. In verses 6 through 9, Paul emphasizes this in illustrating God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael. That's why he says they're not all Israel who are of Israel. Now, Abraham, I'll just briefly recap the story. Abraham had two sons. God came to him when he was 75 years old and said, guess what? You and your wife, you're going to have a baby. Abraham laughed. And then later, Sarah, Sarai, his wife, laughed. And and then she lied about it. I won't get into that. It's a very comical, very funny, but very endearing story. Anyway, he says, you're going to have a child. So, like I said, Abraham's 75 years old, and he goes for a few years. God's not answering this. And he's thinking, well, you know, what's the deal? Maybe I need to figure this out on my own. And at about 86 years old, he says, hey, you know, and he and his wife get together. They decide that he's going to take her handmaid, a woman by the name of Hagar, and that she would get pregnant. She would have the child. And Abraham's thinking, well, I'm just going to help God out with this. How many times I've gotten in trouble? Well, I've wanted to help God out with something. So anyway, they have the baby. And then 25 years, at 100 years old, Sarah gets pregnant and she delivers Isaac. So first they have Ishmael. I think they, I hope I didn't get his name wrong in there. But so first they have Ishmael, the child outside of the promise. And then they have Isaac, the child born of the promise. God could have chosen either one because he's a choosing God. But Ishmael didn't count. Why? Because God said so. He was the child that was born outside the promise. So the Jews had no problem with God's way of doing things here, choosing the lineage of of Israel and, and through that, the lineage of Messiah through Isaac, mainly because they were descendants of Abraham and Isaac and they liked God's choice. They benefited from God's choice. And it was a sovereign choice. He could have done it any other way that he chose. So verses 10 through 12 here, it says, and not only this, but when Rebecca's, uh, who's Isaac's wife, had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, uh, for the children not yet were born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So what does all that mean? First of all, this was completely outside of Jewish tradition. The firstborn always had the greater position in the family. He was the guy that would be raised up to carry on the family name, and he would call the shots, he would manage the estate, he did the whole thing. But God's selection, God's election, passed him by and rested on Jacob. Uh, Let's look at the story for a minute. In Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23, uh, we read, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. (laughs) I love this. But the children struggled together within her. They're already fighting. Take courage. Parents with kids that fight. (laughs) They were already going at it in the womb. So the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. God even tells her ahead of time, this is how it's going to come down. So the firstborn Esau would become the patriarch in the family. He'd hold the place of honor and prominence and he'd make the decisions and his lineage would be that which counted. It's not how it happened, is it? What did God do? He chose Jacob over Esau purely on the basis of his sovereignty, on the basis that he is a choosing God. That's why verse 11 tells us the choice was made before the boys were born. They didn't have anything to do with it. They couldn't, they'd not done any good or any evil at that. I mean, even though they were not getting along in the womb, but it was about God's sovereign purposes, not their works. That's the point that Paul is making here as he's appealing to Israel. That's election. That's what it means to be the elect. God elected Jacob before he was born. Talk about greater relevance with that to us as we go along a little bit this morning and again, mainly next week, because we really get into where Paul begins to tie all of these thoughts together. But the point is here is that they had the, the Jews of Paul's day, they had zero problem. They had there was no issue with the fact that God had chosen and that he had done things the way that he had done things because they approved of his choices. They were the recipients, the direct recipients of those choices. And they went, well, yeah, that's great, God. That's good. That's wonderful. I like this. I like that you're a choosing God until it doesn't suit me. And it would be through the sons of Jacob that the nation would be birthed. His name would be changed to Israel. They're wrestling with the angel at the brook Jabbok and, and, and all of that. Uh, and, and those sons would end up in Egypt and they would multiply and multiply over 400 years and come out of Egypt as a nation. That's how, how Israel was born. And it came through Jacob, not Esau. Esau went off and he ended up being the head of a whole different group. Not going to go into that this morning. So now with salvation coming through Jesus on the basis of God's grace alone, they decided they didn't like God's choices. They decided, well, I don't like the way you're doing it, God. And I don't know how you are as a father or a mother, but when my children would say, I don't like the way you're doing that, my response usually was tough beans. That's how it is. Because I was the sovereign in my household. And I made the choices. I set the direction. And it's a good thing because I always had my kids best in mind. And we got to consider that as we're considering the sovereignty of God. Uh, he, he's also making it clear, Paul's also making it clear that God has always been like this. He has not changed towards you, Israel. He still loves you. He still desires a relationship with you. That he chooses doesn't mean that, that, that he's changed or, or with them or with us. We see the effects of God's choices, of God's sovereignty in our lives. Folks, let's get really practical about this. We often in our lives get hit with circumstances that don't feel good. We get hit with things in our lives. Nancy's shaking her head yes. Her son's been in ICU for weeks with 
a month, yeah, <laughs> with COVID. And, and he's getting better, by the way. Those of you that have been praying for Ed. The point is, is that we face circumstances. We face trials. We, we suffer. We've looked at that as we've gone through, especially in Romans 8, where he's talking about God's causing all these things to work together for good. And, and, and yeah, there have been times where I'm, I'm like, God, you don't know what this circumstance is like. I mean, this thing really is overwhelming me. And, and so often with the Lord, he comes back to me and he says, you know, I'm working good. You don't understand it. And that you don't understand. You know what? That's not part of the contract. Let me just point that out. If you hadn't noticed, he doesn't tell us ahead of time what he's doing. He, he very often allows us to go through things where it's essentially as though he's saying, are you going to trust me even if? Are you going to trust me even when? He's a sovereign God. He is working things for our ultimate good, which will be when we show up there in heaven and we hear, I pray those words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. That's the goal. Verse 13, he says, uh, uh, Paul writing here uh, in 9.13, he says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I've hated. Now, let's talk about that. Some people trip over this. This this has been a stumbling block for a lot of people down through the ages. And uh, I'm going to do my best with it. There are people that say, aha, see, that proves that there's divine election and nothing else. You don't have any any choice in it. It's not about your will at all. To which my reply is hogwash. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Because the preference for Jacob is interpreted here as an act of love, whereby he's bypassing Esau. That's seen as an act of hatred by comparison. This is comparative language. It's comparative hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? It's where you overstate to make a point. So if I go out there and say, man, it's hotter than the surface of the sun out there. It's not hotter than the surface of the sun out there. That's hyperbole. It means it's hot. What he's saying here is that that his love for Jacob by comparison to his relationship with Esau is so great. It's as though it's hatred by comparison. Jesus uses the same language in Luke 14. In Luke 14, 26, uh, we read, if anyone comes to me, Jesus talking here, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife or children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. You know, I don't, I hope, we, <laughs> I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this morning. I was thinking, um, maybe I could like stand at the door and as you walk in for church, okay, you hate your mother? Hate your, how about, you hate your kids? Do you, do you, <laughs> I mean, how ludicrous is that? But again, it's compared, it's figurative language. It's hyperbole is saying that if you don't love God so much, if you don't love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to the degree that by comparison, the love you have for your family is hatred, you can't be my disciple. That makes sense, right? It's not about lining up at the door. My point is, is that's what Paul is saying here. He's quoting Malachi uh, as he says that. But the point is, it's comparative. He's saying he loved Esau less than Jacob. Um, and we see that because of his sovereign election of Jacob. The point, my love should be so great and I should hate my life, that I should hate my life, that I should 
that, that there should just be this, this strong division between the love I have for the Lord and, and even my own life pales to insignificance as I look at it. It's comparative language. It's not absolute. Verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. I like in the New American Standard Bible says, he says, there's no injustice with God, is there? Ask the rhetorical question. So what Paul's doing here is he's anticipating their question. Is there unrighteousness? Is there injustice with God? Or let me put it another way. Isn't it unfair for God to be doing all the choosing here? <laughs> That's essentially what they're saying. Isn't it? And his answer to them is certainly not. That's the same language we've seen many times in this book. And it's rendered, God forbid, in the King James, is rendered, may it never be in the New American Standard. But certainly not. It's a very powerful statement. Not a chance would be in our vernacular. Not a chance. Is there injustice or, or, or somehow unrighteousness with God himself? He would no longer be God if there was. The problem in our minds is we see some, when we see somebody with tremendous power, it unsettles us, doesn't it? When we see men, think about it. We've seen what happens when man has the power. It's a disaster. Think about the, the men of the 20th and, and into the 21st century. Think about Stalin or Hitler or Mussolini or uh, Paul Pot in Cambodia or Mao Zedong in China. All of these men who had amassed great power killed tens of millions of people because they could. We err greatly if we try to ascribe man's attributes to God. Sometimes people do that. Sometimes we slip into it looking at God. And yes, we know that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man simultaneously. However, he never set aside his divinity when he came and walked the earth. He maintained it. He's God. And so we err if we try to lower God to make him like us. And I think that that's where that fear comes from. When we see someone who's so powerful, and and what Paul's saying here is that God has got this power. He has the power to choose. He has the power to set the course of the nations. He has the power to speak into your life. But he can't be feared. He ought not be feared. It's not who he is. Here's what Jesus did with the power he had. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, he says, let this mind, Paul writing here to the church at Philippi, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Talking about the deity of Christ. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I love that. Jesus emptied himself of the power. He set aside his divine prerogative. Could he have taken himself down from that cross? Yeah. Could he have thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple when Satan tempted? Yeah. Could he have commanded the stones to become bread? Yeah. He had the power. He demonstrated that power when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he healed the sick, when he made the lame walk. But because of his love, He reigned in that power because he had to experience life as a man. 
after he was crucified, after he was resurrected, uh, Paul switches gears in the same passage here in Philippians. He says, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Here's something that has repeatedly puzzled me for <laughs> nearly 40 years, as long as I've been a believer. The unbelieving Jews stumbled. They rejected, again, God's choice of Messiah, his choice of the manner in which he would save. Unbelieving men, unbelieving women today reject, choosing their own way, the way of death. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, there's a popular movement out there called pro-choice. I want to choose. I want to throw God's yoke off. I want to choose for myself. I don't want anything to do with the one who holds my life in his hands. I want to choose myself. Look at the disaster that has created in just our nation. 60 million children dead. That's what happens when man exercises his sovereignty over God's. It's not the way God set it up, folks. Sometimes, as I said, we go through tough stuff. It doesn't mean that you automatically have to like the circumstances that you're in. But I'll tell you what, there's great benefit in loving the one who holds those circumstances in his hands. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, you haven't, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin in your own life. The point is, it's not about our choosing, it's about his. The point is, it's not about us exercising our sovereignty away from him. We have autonomy. We make choices. We make our own decisions. Hopefully, in the light of God's word and through the power of God's spirit, that's true. But woe is us when we break away and want to exercise sovereignty over our own lives. Not a good idea. It puzzles me. Because every single thing that God does is good. I, yeah, I may not see it, but I have, I've come to trust. He's doing good. He's working that together for good, as we saw just a few verses ago. All of this was put in a place, looking at Israel, all of that was put in a place to give them and us a better way to relate to God. God's doing good things. He's given us a better way to relate to the circumstances within which we often find ourselves. In the book of Hebrews, the writer gives a series of sharp contrasts. It's what the book is about. He's saying, look at this in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Now look at Jesus. Look at this. Now look at Jesus. He, so he does these sharp contrasts between the New and the Old Covenants. And a word which comes up repeatedly throughout the book of Hebrews is the word better in regard to Jesus. I'll give you a quick list here. Better than the prophets, better than angels, better than Moses, better than Joshua and Aaron, a better high priest, a better hope, a better priesthood, a better covenant, a better tabernacle, a better sacrifice for sin, a better way, and a better relationship. Jesus is better. God's way is better. God's sovereign plan for your and my life is better than anything we could work out on our own apart from him. Bottom line, what Jesus offers is infinitely superior to what the Jews had. And Paul is pointing that out as he works through this passage towards that end of their being stumbled over the stumbling stone. Folks, there's zero downside to the sovereignty of God. He's always working for our good, even when 
and often especially when we can't see it. Paul starts this letter and ends this letter with what he calls the obedience of faith. It's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 16. And in between, we have all of these examples on on what it is to live a life that is walked out by faith, by trusting him, to know that his sovereign plan is so much better than ours. For the Jews and Gentiles alike, for them in the first century with this new thing that Jesus had done, it wouldn't any longer be on the basis of what one could do, but on the basis of what a sovereign God in his mercy has done. It's not about what's ahead of me that I have to do to get to God. It's about what's behind me that I recognize has been done, that I can get to God. That's the beauty of it. All I do is, again, all I do is receive it. Verses 15 and 16 here, he says, uh, for he says of Moses, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, there's a lot more to unpack in those two verses, and that's where we're going to go when we begin next week. Suffice it to say, I'll take God's mercy and God's compassion any time. I want that. I don't want his justice. That's a slippery slope. If I get what I deserve, which is what justice is, I get hell. But instead, I want his grace. I want his mercy. I want his compassion in my life. Folks, I don't know where you're at with the Lord. Uh, people online, people here. But let me tell you something about this. The gospel is powerful. It, it simply means good news. So what's the good news, Pastor John? Jesus went to that cross for you. It was a sovereign act of God's love for us. He loves us to the point, even when we're in abject rebellion towards him, even when we might be putting on a show and acting spiritual, but inside our heart is rotten or our heart is struggling or our heart is maligned somehow. He sees all of it and he wants, he pursues a relationship not on the basis of rule keeping, as we've seen, not on the basis of what he did with Israel. No, that's no longer the case. But on the basis of his unmerited favor, of his love, his great love that he has for you, for me. So how do I get there? How do I come into this? How do I get back to this relationship? It's really simple. Give your heart to Jesus. All of it. Let him take your dented up, broken, grieved, painful, hard life and make it new. Simply come to him with a humble heart. Humility is required. And say, Lord, or God, I've been living my life away from you. Again, maybe the externals have been in place, but the internals, I'm convicted. But I give you my heart afresh this morning, now. I ask you to come in. I turn from that which I know is blocking me from you, my sin. I turn from that. I ask you to forgive me for that. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Give me meaning and purpose and direction. That's the how. He won't go against your own will. Choose to harden your heart. We're going to look at that next week when we look at Pharaoh. He'll allow you to do that. 
Do you choose to humble out? To cry out for him? He's there. He's there a hundred percent. And he's there to take that heart and to make it new. That's the gospel. That's the word of God.